So, um, that being said, what we want to do is we want to get right into uh, what our, our Scripture passage is for today. We have been going through the book of Acts, and it is certainly all about the church on mission. It is the unstoppable mission of the church. And we see some themes that are running through the book of Acts. We see the development of the early church. But what's so big, and we see that again this morning, is their reliance upon and their need to rely upon the person of the Holy Spirit. Because, of course, you remember how the book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus Christ and then Him leaving the person of the Holy Spirit for us. And uh, that is what we see throughout the book of Acts is the Spirit leading the apostles as they go and they spread the good news of the gospel all over as they were called to do in the Great Commission by the Lord Jesus, okay? So it's a pretty simple story and a pretty simple premise about what God is doing with the early church, but it gives us such a great detailed picture of what God is doing. But we can truly uh, apply so much of this to ourselves. There's many implications for us as followers of Christ today. And so today's passage is actually the entire chapter of Acts chapter 17. And so we're going to go through it word by word. We'll be here about four hours, if that's okay with you. As I mentioned, sometimes we, um, we bite off much bigger chunks. It just kind of makes sense because of the, the flow of Scripture. But of course, we're going to have one you know, particular theme or topic that we're going to focus on. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter. So you'll follow along uh, either in your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen for us as well. But this is Acts chapter 17. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the second half because you're going to see in this chapter, we see Paul and Silas, especially Paul, visiting three different main places. We know that they went on their first missionary journey. They went back to their sending church in Antioch. Remember we talked about how it was the the first um, missions trip. They go back, they get uh, renewed and refreshed, and then Paul's like, let's go out again. Remember that? But then Paul and, and Barnabas are like, let's go out again. But Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark, who had left them earlier, and Paul said no. And so there was sort of that, that, um, that debate and that argument, that rift between the two of them. So they went separate ways on different journeys, but what we pick up on is Paul and Silas going back through the cities that uh, where they had preached the gospel, and planted churches on their first journey. So now they're on their second journey. And where we pick up now is they visit Thessalonica, they visit Berea, and then finally we see Paul in Athens. And that's kind of where we're going to park this morning for most of our time is Paul in Athens. It really is an amazing story, and you'll see as I read it. But here's what I want you to focus on. As we read through it together... Just kind of keep in context the idea of what it looks like for Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and for us to evangelize, to simply share the gospel, the good news about what Jesus Christ has done for us and for every person. And so they do that in Thessalonica, they do it in Berea, and then Paul starts to do it in Athens. But we're going to see how unique... 
Paul's opportunity is in the city of Athens and what it looks like for us today. So that's going to be our focus. So kind of as you're reading it, keep in context the fact that they are sharing the gospel. And then especially when we get to uh, verses 16 and then to the rest of the chapter, what Paul does when he's in Athens to be able to then share the good news of Jesus Christ. All right? So here we go. This is Acts chapter 17. And it starts with Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. That's typical, right? If you notice, there's another theme. Paul would always go to the synagogue and start preaching there. So here he does the same thing. Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. They shouted, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So when they had taken money as a security from Jason and from the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, they go there. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the midst, in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And now he preaches to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. A long passage. A lot happens here. So Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica. They go to the synagogue and they preach. They preached the resurrection of Christ. Some were persuaded, but others were incited almost to violence, and they drove them out. And so, Paul and Silas, in the secret of night, they were sent away for their protection. We've seen this happen before. And they show up to Berea. Now, what happens in Berea couldn't be any different, more different than what happens in Thessalonica. Because it says in Berea, the Jews were more noble 
than their brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness. They even, they even took Paul's every word and checked it against the scriptures. Isn't that cool? Now, we should always be doing that ourselves, shouldn't we? Great lesson from there. Whatever you hear from me, from other Bible teachers, whatever you hear or read, we always check it against Scripture. That's what they did. So they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. They didn't just take his word for it. Even though he spoke with power and authority, they went to the Scriptures to test it and to check it. It says, many therefore believed, women as well. But what happened? The Jews from Thessalonica that had driven them out when they went to Berea, those Jews heard about the fact that they were being successful in Berea. They're like, let's go there too. So those Thessalonican Jews, they came to Berea and caused problems there as well. And Paul and Silas were probably just like, man, we can't catch a break. And so what happens was, at the, what happens is at the end of that section where it talks about them in Berea, it says in verse 15, it says 14 and 15, they sent them, the brothers sent Paul on his way all the way to Athens to escape what was happening with the Jews who were inciting a riot. But Silas and Timothy stayed. Okay, Silas and Timothy, they stayed in Berea and dealt with the agitators but Paul was sent on his way they brought him all the way to Athens and he was to go to Athens and wait for Silas and Timothy to join him and that's where we're going to kind of pick up where we're going to settle ourselves today in the word so starting in 16 it paints a picture of Paul in Athens now It's important to understand that Paul did not have a plan to go to Athens. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks that God often has plans that are different from ours, right? It's good that we make plans and we can set an agenda. We all do that to some degree, but we have to let the Spirit of God guide and direct us. We have to be willing to surrender our plans to Him, right? And so... Paul did not intend to go to Athens. He wanted to stay in Berea. And he was there and his preaching was going well. But because of circumstances outside of his control, the rioting of those Jews all the way back from Thessalonica, he was sent away for his own protection and safety. And he went to Athens. He was brought there. So Paul did not plan to be in Athens. But he finds himself there. And he has some time to kill. You know why? Because he's waiting for Timothy and for Silas to join him. So Paul, in a way, is kind of like a tourist in Athens. Have you ever been to Athens? Been to Greece? Oh, okay. I got to see. Got out a different plan. Now I got to change my notes and everything. That's, that's not where. No, I'm just joking. So Paul finds himself in Athens, didn't plan to be there. He's kind of like a tourist, and he's looking around. Did you ever like walk around New York City? I know you've been in New York City. Please raise your hand. You've been there. Thank you. Thank you. We live in New Jersey, for goodness sakes, right? But you notice, did you ever go to Times Square, especially at night? Isn't it amazing? 
I mean, maybe some, maybe some of you are like, no, I can't stand it, right? But you do it at least once just to get the feel of it. I mean, it certainly is a city that never sleeps. The lights are always on. It's just, it's like daytime all the time with all the lights and all of the massive humanity that is just there congregated, right? All kinds of people from all over. And you know when you can see a tourist who's not from the area. They usually still have a camera, right? Or they got their cell phones and they're usually looking up. They're bumping into other people, right? Almost to the point where they're looking up and they're so amazed they're missing all of the amazing and unique people that are passing by them like spider-man right and lady liberty you know that they they walk around it's really them and they walk around times square i actually um i remember a few months ago i was in uh, times square passing through and i'm walking through there to get to somewhere else and i noticed all of these people and i mean it's hard not to but they're just walking right by all of these people in their crazy costumes, right? They're just walking by them like they don't even exist. But there's so much going on, you know? But it can be easy to miss stuff. Now, maybe you have stories about that as well. When you were a tourist in a foreign country and, and you're going and you're visiting someplace and you're just missing so much because you have your head elsewhere, you're focusing on something. It's like, you know, it's like you hear stories these days of, of people going to visit like the Grand Canyon, right? And it's just like, you get there and all they're doing is taking pictures and then texting the pictures, hey, I'm at the Grand Canyon. How about you just kind of take it all in first, you know? Like, yeah, and you look at it, you know? You're kind of missing the grandeur of it. You're missing what's going on around you, right? Well, Paul didn't let that happen. So in a way, Paul was a tourist in Athens, but he's looking around. And what does he notice? In verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. So he was always in surrendering to the spirit. The spirit provoked him so that what he noticed was that the city was full of idols. And it did something to him. So rather than saying, cool, check out all these statues... He said, man, this city is full of idols. So in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Because remember, he always went to the synagogue. He did it in Athens as well. But it also says in verse 17, and in the marketplace. He did it every day with those who happened to be there. Whoever was there. Also in the marketplace. Then in verse 18, it names some of them. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they were kind of always at odds. Because the Stoic philosophers were all about sort of overcoming your emotions and not letting anything get to you. They had this philosophy that, you know, even if there was a God, He wasn't really involved. But the Epicureans were all about worldly pleasure. Whatever could lead to happiness and pleasure. And that if God was um, did exist that he really was kind of hands-off, or that's what he wanted for us. So there were these two really opposing um, philosophies, among many others, but it says that there were the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they talked with Paul. And they were just like, what is this guy talking about? Verse 18, and then verse 19, they took him out, they took him up to the Areopagus, which is also known as Mars Hill. Maybe you've heard of that. And at the time, it really was the place 
especially back in the day in the, the heyday of Athens, which was way before this, it was a it was a place where sort of the, the leaders of the day, the civic leaders and the religious leaders, that's where they met. It was up on a large hill, and that's where they met to discuss the issues of the day and maybe to proclaim laws. And so that was what we know as Mars Hill or the Oropagus, which comes from the name of one of the Greek gods who was the god of war. And um, it was said that uh, he was put on trial there for uh, murdering the son of another god, I think Poseidon's son, right? And so they kind of named it Oropagus, and that was it. It was Mars Hill. And that was the place. So they brought him there, and they're like, tell us more about what's going on. Because they say, hey, can we know some of these new teachings? They hadn't heard of this teaching. See, what you have to understand also is that what it says in verse 21, it says that all these people would do was spend their time talking, debating, telling, or hearing of some new philosophy. It's what they love to do. It's what they were known for. So what Paul was preaching was something new to them. It was something new. Like they hadn't heard about Jesus being risen from the dead. And so they said, let's hear more about this. So then in verse 22, it says that he's standing there and he addresses them. And he says these two important words in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive. Stop right there. I perceive. Because he had noticed all these idols. He heard them bantering back and forth with their philosophies and what they thought was true wisdom, searching for the truth. And they had many gods. History kind of tells us that at one point, especially this point in Athens history, they had more gods than citizens. Not something. But they had so many gods. But Paul says, I perceive. He was perceptive and insightful of what was going on around him. And he starts to talk to them. And he has sort of a way to open a door. Have you ever shared your faith with somebody? Telling them that you're a Christian and you kind of have a maybe a connection with them, a way to kind of share like a common bond, something you have in common, and then it kind of opens a door. And that's a great way to do that, to, to have a common ground. You know, it's kind of like you don't want to be as abrupt as just kind of, you know, like you go to the fast food place and you go to the drive up and you're like, I'd like a, a large number one with a milkshake. And do you know about Jesus? You know? It's like maybe a little more tactful. You know what I'm saying? So he goes and he says, uh, Men, I notice and I perceive that you're very religious. So they're just like, Yes, we are. And they started, Hey, we'll listen to this guy. He knows religious. Check out all of our idols, right? And all of these gods. Yes, we are very religious. So then he notices one in verse 23. I love this. He says, So I was passing along. I noticed all these objects of your worship, but I came across this one particular altar. See, now he's got this in, this open door, but now he's getting a little more specific. And he says, there's an altar to one of your gods, but it says, the inscription says, to the unknown God. Right? And he was curious about this. And he basically says, what you worship is unknown. I'm about to proclaim to you that you can know it. 
And he goes right into sharing the gospel. It's pretty cool, right? But notice also, we're moving right along, and I'm going to kind of go back and just look at a few implications for us. But notice how he starts sharing the truth. In verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and he continues on. See, he starts not with Jesus, but he recognizes they they don't even know who the one true God is. So he says, you have an inscription here for an altar for an unknown God. I know the true God, the one true God. Let me introduce you to him. So he starts from the very beginning. He's saying God is the maker of all things, heaven and earth. And then in verse 26, he made from one man every nation. He's talking about Adam. He goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, right? And he says, this is God. He created everything. Then he created man from one man. He gave them, put them all over the face of the earth. He's covering generations and centuries and thousands of years of human history. He creates boundaries for where they're going to live and puts in their heart that they should seek God. But then he says, you know what? God is actually not distant. So now he's getting back to that, to the inscription of the unknown God. For he said, God is, he lives and moves in our being. And then he says, and he just keeps parlaying it in verse 29. See, up to verse 29, when he starts this um, sharing the story of God, he's talking about who God is. See, that's important. If you're insightful and you're having a conversation with somebody and sharing the faith that you have in Jesus, it's important to to first note, well, if you're going to start talking about God, are they on the same page with you? Are they believing in the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. If not, you need to start by introducing them to the one true God. See, that's what Paul did, right? Or else if you're starting to talk about Jesus, and you're starting to talk about sin and the need of, of, uh, of redemption, you start getting into the gospel story, maybe there's not that foundation there just yet. Sometimes it takes time to build a foundation, doesn't it? You build relationships and you talk to people over time. Maybe it's years and you're building a foundation. But all the while you're sharing the gospel but telling them about the one true God. So at the first part, he tells them who this one true God is, the maker of everything, including men. But then in verse 29 to the end, he tells them what God did. So first he's like, here's who God is. And now here's what God did. So he said in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the ardent imagination of man. See, now he's getting right to the quick because they're all standing there looking at all of these gods and the idols and statues made to them. And he's like, God, he overlooked all that, but you know what? We are his offspring, so we shouldn't really be making these idols because it doesn't make sense. We are the ones who look like him. We're made in his image. But then in verse 30, he gets right to it. He says, up until now, 
God has overlooked people's ignorance about all this. But not anymore. He says, but now. Two important words, right? He says, but now. He commands all people everywhere to repent. So these are the things God has done. He commands people to repent. Verse 31, He has fixed a day when He will judge the world by a man He has appointed because He has raised Him from the dead. He ends the Gospel story with the resurrection. First thing I want to mention as far as implications for us as followers of Christ, whenever we share the Gospel, let us make sure that we preach the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is not enough to say that Jesus died on the cross for us. We need to proclaim that first, but what about the resurrection? That is what the apostles went all around preaching. We've seen it all the way through Acts so far. They preached the resurrection of the Messiah. Who God is, who Jesus is, God raised Him from the dead. He sent Him to the cross. Jesus went willingly. Philippians 2, 1-11, the humility. He went to death, even death on a cross. But God raised Him from the dead. Why is that so important? Because it's the resurrection that is the cornerstone of our faith. Is it not what separates us in our faith from every other world religion and faith that our Savior, the one that we believe in, claimed to be God, that He was going to die and rise again, and He did. And no others did. So He rose from the dead. We have to proclaim the crucifixion and the resurrection from the dead. But it is also important because therein lies the hope. See, this world is hopeless. There is no hope. There is no true peace that this world can offer but only what Christ can offer. Didn't Jesus say that peace I give to you, peace I leave with you, but not the kind of peace that the world gives, right? So it is in the resurrection of the Messiah that we have the true hope that we can share. When Scripture says that we're always to be prepared to share and to give an account of the hope that is within us, that's what Paul was doing. He was ready. He was ready to share. So, we always have to be ready to share. See, Paul might have sort of been on vacation. He was a tourist, but you know what? And he gives his, his actions are a great example. We don't take vacations from being Christians. Is that right? No matter where we are, whatever circumstance, with family, friends, work, school, you're by yourself, you're still a follower of Christ. Our faith should always be our filter. Our faith should always be our filter in all things, always. See, Paul was there just basically waiting in Athens for for Silas and Timothy to join him. But he's got his radar on, you see? He doesn't just say, oh, look at all of the cool idols. Because his faith is always his filter. And he says, oh, and so the Holy Spirit, it says, touches him so that he recognizes i got to tell these people about the one true God. What is it with all these idols? He couldn't sit still and do that. Because we never take a vacation from being a Christian. But we also have to notice that what he did in sharing the Gospel was he kept it very simple. Who was it that he was sharing the Gospel with? 
They were men who were supposedly very wise. They were intellectuals. They were philosophers. And it said all they loved to do day and night was debate. They loved to get into the details of debating different philosophies. Did you ever come across somebody like that? All you want to do is kind of share about how Jesus loves you and loves them. And they want to talk about how all of these dinosaurs, or they want to talk about (laughs) creation, evolution. Hey, great stuff to talk about. It could be that door. It could be that inn. But the point is, is no matter how your conversation starts, bring it back to Jesus. Bring it back to Jesus. It's what he did. He told them briefly about the God who is and can be known. And he brought it right to the fact that Messiah was sent by him. Died, but rose again because God calls everyone to repentance. And he's coming back to judge. See that? So he brought it all in there. He talked about sin, the need for repentance, that Jesus is the only way, and God's going to come back and repent, so now is the day for you to turn to this God, the God who can be known. See, there's another thing. Paul says, you know what? You have this inscription to a God who you say is unknown. The true God can be known. He is not off in the distance. He is A God who wants to know us and love us intimately. And let us never forget that. But we also see that he kept the gospel simple. He didn't complicate it with his own wisdom. I think we can all take a note from that. That when you're sharing the gospel, don't complicate it with your own truth, your own wisdom. You know what I mean? Make sure you preach what is true to the scriptures you're praying that god would give you an in and a way to to uniquely share with somebody because of course the methods of how we do it will change but the message never changes let's make sure we remember that as well the methods will change but the message always stays the same So Paul goes to Thessalonica and to Berea and he goes to Athens, but he's using different ways to share the gospel. And so when he's in Athens, he says, here's an inn. There's an inscription to an unknown God. My God can be known. I'm going to share with them. And he gets their attention. Hey, you're religious. Yes, we are. Boom. And he's got an inn. You see? So yes, he adapted his method to the context of his situation, But the message stayed the same. No matter who you're sharing it with, the gospel stays the same. He's sharing the gospel truth with intellectuals. So whether you go to a college campus and share the gospel with professors, or you're on the streets of New York sharing the gospel with somebody who happens to be homeless, is it not the same message? Is it not the same truth, the same gospel, the same God? It also applies to to church and to the way that we express our faith. Churches all around the world express their faith differently based, um, based upon their context, the people who are there, the society they live in, the, the norms and cultures of their society. So the expression of the faith might change. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've seen it change. The music and worship changes, right? Different ministries come and go. The way that you share the gospel changes. 
How about social media, right? All these things, like there's different methods and ways that we can share the gospel. But the message doesn't change. The method might change. The gospel doesn't. The way that we worship God on a Sunday morning might look very different from the way it did 5, 10, 20, 100 years ago. But we're still worshiping the same God. Right? And it's still the same God who sent the same Jesus to save us. How we tell the story might change, but it's always the same story about the same God. We're sharing the same Gospel. And then I, I conclude with this. I'm going to show you just briefly four other passages of Scriptures. You're going to just write down the, um, the references. But look at how much they relate to what Paul just did here in Athens. It's one passage from Romans and three from 1 Corinthians. And it makes sense because right after he leaves Athens, what we're going to see next week in chapter 18 is he goes to Corinth. And then he writes a letter to them. So it stands to reason that what he's writing in 1 Corinthians to that church has so much to do with his experience in Athens. Because you remember, a big thing that was happening here was the, the altercation, if you will, between wisdom and foolishness. Because the philosophers thought they were wise, but they were really foolish. But Paul says he's preaching the foolishness of Christ because it's truly the wisdom of God, right? Because we know that what is foolishness to the world is the true wisdom of God. So look at these passages, and I'll read them quickly. There's just a few verses in each. The first one is in Romans. It's Romans chapter 1. As we read this, keep it in context of what Paul just did in Athens and how he shared, okay? From the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Does that sound like his experience in Athens, looking at all the idols? And saying, this men, these men who thought that they were wise, they were really foolish. Look at the next one. 1 Corinthians. This is how he, he starts his letter to Corinthians, which are the people that he meet right after. He meets right after going to Athens. He says, right in the first chapter, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age like those philosophers? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, all those people he met. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This came all out of his visit with Athens, right? And then going on to Corinth. And then finally, I think there's one more. In first, oh, There's two more. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, like those philosophers, right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's the simplicity of the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to be full of intellectual wisdom and know the whole Bible front and backwards and, and know your Greek and Hebrew and know every doctrine of the church to be able to share the simple but most powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul even said it. Paul himself, he said, I didn't come to you with all those big words. I just shared with you because it was the power of God in me. See that? Let's remember that too. When we share the gospel, it's not in our power, it's in His power. It's not our responsibility to make people come to Him. We share the gospel, we plant the seed as God gives us those divine opportunities like He did for Paul in Athens. Also, it's good to note that at the very end of our chapter in 17, it says that the, some of those who some of those believed, some mocked him, but there was others that said, we want to hear more. What it meant was they wanted to debate more because that's what they love to do, right? So what did Paul do? He said, no, I'm done here, and he left. He didn't bother with all of those crazy debates he knew was going to come because he planted the seed, he shared the truth. Now it was up to them to deal with what was presented to them. He introduced them to the God that can be known. That was what God called him to do. God didn't call him to debate with these philosophers and to get tangled up in all this worldly wisdom. He shared the gospel. He shared the truth and he moved on. And then the last passage from 1 Corinthians says this. A couple verses. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, but that they are futile. So we're going to move into a time right now where 
we get to partake in the table of the lord.